The views presented are those of the speakers and do not necessarily represent the views of the Department of Defense or its components. Just having gone through the dark ages and now finally days are getting longer again. It's not quite so cold, so we're starting to come out of it. But you know, especially January, February around here, we used to call that the dark ages. And you, you, yep. you, you gotta, you gotta do something to to keep your spirits up or your wits about you, because after a while, the cold and the dark it just starts to get into your bones. You know, you know the truth. Yeah. Did you uh, do you do any cool spirit missions while you were here? Oh gosh. <laughs> We did. We used to move the airplanes around a lot, and that was a big deal. And uh, but we we'd have spirit rallies, and then there was one time people got in trouble because they brought a bunch of beer in. <laughs> wasn't supposed to do that. And, you know, this. Uh, you know, again, youth and energy and vigor and all that, and uh, you're gonna find ways to express yourself. Our our big event was when we had hundredth night for all the firsties. You mm -hmm. know? And uh, some of the really crazy things that used to go on. I remember we uh, we had this one guy in our squad. I was in Seventh Squadron, and we had one guy. We we took his entire room and we shipped it. We shipped it to Pueblo. Oh my god! <laughs> yeah. And, and did you and reassemble it in Pueblo? I, I I forget now what happened to it down there, but uh, I had the trouble getting it back. And then we we had, we had another guy. We turned his uh, we turned his room into a fishbowl. We brought in plastic and had it all around. And when he walked back in, there was about eight inches of water, and there was about a thousand goldfish. In it. <laughs> you know, and then probably the worst of all, we had this one guy that uh, was just really an asshole. <laughs> had a shitty attitude, and he was, you know, everything was GD this and GD that, and he wasn't happy being here mm -hmm. <clears throat> so in a case like that what you do you, the ultimate insult is to do nothing to a firsties room yeah so just we, or sammy them that's that's yeah, the insult or, or, you know, spruce it up yeah so anyway what we did in his room we put tape right down the middle of the room and the other side we just completely trashed it you know mm. in his room nothing was touched <laughs> well i'll say almost nothing was touched because <clears throat> one of the guys went in there and they took one of his pillows Oh, no. And they and they sliced open the end of it, the pillow. <laughs> and one of my, <clears throat> an unnamed cadet went in there and, and took a big dump oh right in the God. middle of that pillow. And then they and then they fluffed it up again, you know, and then sewed it back up. And oh my God. we we discovered the ultimate uh, uh, end of that about two nights later when all of a sudden. This guy screams in the middle of the night because he realizes what that lump in the middle of his pillow is. Everybody woke up. Everybody knew what it was. And it was, you know, it, it probably doesn't make sense to most people, but it made a lot of sense then, you know. And, and, uh, and then he knew, and Then he, I guess then he knew that we, we really did love him. What can I say? But that was probably the most dramatic thing I ever saw. And then there was the night when the firsties went to, uh, on, on 100th night, and of course they all go out and have a big party and they came back mm -hmm. and they're in seven squadron we had we got one of these big trash dumpsters you know mm -hmm. and we filled it full of water <laughs> and when the firsties came up the stairs and started walking down the hall into the squadron area we dumped we tipped this dumpster over and all that water i mean it was in vandy uh, yes in vandy hall yes 
That's probably why the building probably still leaks anyway. <laughs> and that wall of water hit those guys, and they looked like bowling pins just being shoved back and knocked them the wall and everything. Oh, my gosh. The, the things we did, yeah. And a lot of those guys are now retired generals, and, and all the pictures have been destroyed. So <laughs> no, nothing's new. I you talked know. to um, uh, Major General Retired Jack Catton. Does that name ring a bell? I know Jack Catton very well, yeah. Um, I actually had him on the podcast when I met him during Corona last October, he told me a story that, um, on the night before Sammy, because the Corona, the night I met him the next morning, I had a Sammy and I was just kind of complaining, complaining about it to him. And he told me a story of on the night before Sammy's, they would, because they didn't have carpets in their room. They, uh, it was it was a floor that you had to wax. You had to buff them, yeah. Yeah. So they took the buffing machine and they would tape the, the on handle mm-hmm. so it would be running and plugged it in outside of the room in the alcove. Mm-hmm. And then in the middle of the night while they were sleeping, whoever was in the room, they would throw the buffing machine and it would just spin and basically cause a ruckus in their room. Mm-hmm. And they couldn't even get up to turn it off because it was just, it was plugged in outside and. Mm-hmm they were in danger of getting thwapped in the face by a buffing machine. Mm-hmm. Does that ever happen when you were here? I, I'm not aware of that one, but I, <laughs> I know Jack Catton very well. In fact, he was wing commander when he was here. He was a cadet wing commander. Wow. Went on to become a major general. Great American, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, I t- well, after he told me that, I went down <clears throat> to the wing staff hallway and I took his picture. I took, apparently, the picture of him there is from his dually year, but they used it for his wing commander picture. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, this place is full of awesome traditions. Well, it is, and, and you guys will create even more for us. 31 days to recognition, huh? 34. 34. Mm-hmm. Okay. Gotcha. So that's in uh, uh, about middle middle April then, yeah? Yeah, a lot later than it was recently. Well, I, I, I have a dually that uh, we sponsor, and uh, I guess that really upset the, the class quite a bit when mm-hmm. they found out that it's going to be longer. Oh, uh, I, don't, I don't envy them at all. Yeah, they'll survive. Yeah, they will. So getting back to another, we went on another awesome tangent there. Um, can you go over uh, some missions specifically that you remember, whether it was a really cool one or you just saw kind of mission components really come together that taught you an important lesson about your profession? Yeah, let's talk about jointness a little bit. Uh, in 1972, the uh, North Vietnamese invaded South Vietnam and... Uh, <clears throat> a lot of us from my squadron in Thailand were pulled off the Ho Chi Minh Trail uh, and sent back into South Vietnam because at that point we were withdrawing from the war and we were pulling our units out of South Vietnam. And now all of a sudden we need a bunch more over there. So, uh, so we got deployed over to Da Nang to work with our, our brothers. We were in the 23rd Tactical Air Support Squadron and at Da Nang was the 20th Tactical Air Support Squadron. Our call sign was nailed, their call sign was Covey. <clears throat> and so we started working there. And when the North Vietnamese invaded, the South Vietnamese Army stopped them. And we had some really, really big force-on-force battles taking place. I'm not talking guerrilla stuff here. I'm talking force-on-force uh, desert storm one generation prior. <clears throat> and uh, so I spent a lot of time working with uh, South Vietnamese infantry units South Vietnamese Marine Infantry Units, and at one time they uh, uh, 
in the middle of the city of Quang Tri in northern uh, South Vietnam, there's this old French citadel, classical 1700, uh, 17, uh, uh, I'm sorry, eight, uh, 18th century uh, uh, citadel there with the big stone walls and, you know, it's kind of a square shape. And they, they, and they wanted to go in there and capture that. And so they, they asked me to bring in a, an airstrike uh, using laser-guided bombs and literally blow open <clears throat> the wall of the citadel so they could go charging in there. So here I am in the midst, midst of this force-on-force battle, and, and I've got F-4s coming in, dropping laser-guided bombs, and just blasting the hell out of the wall <laughs> of that citadel so those guys could go charging in there. You know, it's a classic case of, of, of uh, coalition and joint warfare mm-hmm. because all these disparate parts that we're bringing in together and then, and then on many an occasion, I would actually have a Marine artillery spotter in my back seat in the OV-10, and he would be talking to Navy ships we had on, uh, off the coast and what we call the gun line. Those were usually destroyers and, and cruisers, and they'd be firing artillery force, and so he'd be <clears throat> calling them coordinates, and then they'd start laying in the fire, and then he'd say, okay, I want you to move right 50 meters, fire for effect. And they're just laying their artillery right in there. And, and uh, <clears throat> I also saw the impact of technology there, both in the use of the laser-guided bombs and also the Navy uh, had uh, augmented their artillery shares, shells with what they call rat rounds, r- r- rocket-assisted trajectory rounds. <clears throat> and these were rounds that they could fire, and when they, when they reached the highest point of their, of their arc there, these, they had a little rocket motor, and they would fire, and they would extend the range about another three or four kilometers, you know, mm-hmm. and and then and you'd see a little streak there, going across there, and so I knew exactly where the artillery was flying <laughs> through the air, and I would stay away from there, but it was just really amazing to see how all that technology came together, and uh, in my squadron we had a very unique unique experience because <clears throat> this was right at the beginning of the Air Force beginning to use laser-guided bombs. And laser-guided bombs is what we call a smart bomb, okay? So instead of just dropping the bomb and it's going to land where it's going to land, we now had the ability to guide it Mm -hmm. uh, because it had control fins on it and everything. And right in the nose of the bomb, there was an eyeball that could see reflected laser energy on the ground. So our squadron of OV-10s, we had 15 of our airplanes modified to what what they call pave nails, and, and we had a laser designator, and we have a guy in the back seat, a Wizzo, and he would run this laser designator, and he could both search with that because he had some magnification through the scope, but most importantly, he could designate a target with a laser beam, and then we'd have F-4s drop laser-guided bombs right to that. And that was a tremendous revolution in military affairs there because now instead of just dropping a bunch of dumb bombs where the probability of actually hitting something is pretty low, mm-hmm. now you have a laser weapon and your probability of kill is upwards around 50%. So, you know, a normal F-4, he'd have two Mark 84 laser-guided bombs. That's a 2,000-pound bomb. You put that right on the mark and you're going to do some damage with it. And that's what we were using that day against the Quang Tree Citadel, just slamming into the walls of that thing, just blowing them open. <laughs> And, and that weapon was so effective. I remember later on, I was out working, and one of our priority targets were always the enemy uh, artillery guns. Mm-hmm. And they had some pretty big ones, all the way up to 130 millimeter, which is five and a half inch shell, okay? 
and uh, they could fire those things a long, long way, and they were very devastating against our ground forces. So anytime the guns, those guns were firing and we got a call, our priority uh, mission was to find those guns and kill them. And <clears throat> even though the North Vietnamese were masters at camouflaging those guns, there was one thing they couldn't camouflage. They could not camouflage the muzzle blast. So when we, see the, when we got a call that the guns were firing, we all knew intel would tell us about where the artillery battalions were. Everybody would look there, and the first guy that saw the muzzle blast, he owned it. Mm -hmm. And this one day, uh, that, was, that was I. And so I saw that gun. I flew right over to it, and I brought in some F-4s with dumb bombs, and they bombed around the gun and knocked all the trees off the gun. And there he was, sitting there, big, <laughs> big Y shape, you know. And uh, I then got in a flight of F-4s with laser-guided bombs, and one of the guys dropped a bomb, and the bomb came down, and the bomb did not explode. And that would happen sometimes. It's just a fusing problem. But the, but the bomb actually physically hit that gun. <laughs> and when you've got a 2,000-pound projectile going about 500 miles an hour, that's a lot of smash. <laughs> and, and, that, and that shell actually hit that gun, ripped it apart, killed it. Was the guy there, too? Probably so. <laughs> uh, and now, <clears throat> probably in a case like that, once we started bombing around, the crew would, they'd, they'd head away and get in a bunker somewhere. So I don't know that we killed the crew that day, but we sure as hell killed that gun. We just physically tore it apart. Mm -hmm. That's how good we were with laser-guided bombs. And, of course, today now, for those of you who will be flying our tactical airplanes in the future, uh, just about all of our ordnance is precision weapon now. It's guided in some way or another. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and even even the uh, the uh, uh, the gun sites that we have now, uh, they've got all kinds of better capability than we had in my day. And so, most of your weapons delivery delivery now will be with precision guided weapons. Uh, so, you'll go out in a flight with four bombs and you'll do more damage with those four bombs than I could do with the flight of F4s with 24 Mark 82s all dumb dumb bombs mm -hmm. because you know once you release them you, you can't really control that well where exactly where they're going to go you know uh, some guys that were highly experienced got pretty good at putting in dumb bombs but the probability of kill with the dumb bombs was much lower than with the precision weapons and, mm -hmm. and, and that's where we are today gotcha is there anyone in particular that stuck out to you in your time in Southeast Asia as a tremendous leader? And yeah. if you can, if you remember anything yeah, in particular, yeah. can you tell a story about him? Yeah, uh, I had a couple of squadron commanders, uh, two very different backgrounds and different uh, mannerisms that were extremely effective. And I had some other guys that were first-class jerks I never want to see again. <laughs> you, you're going to get that. But generally, the 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 two guys that were were most effective first of all they had a huge self-confidence they 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 were very comfortable with where they were and they they didn't wear they, they were they were they were aware of their rank they were aware of their authority but they but they didn't flaunt it because they didn't have to because they were the squadron commanders and that was their job and that's what they did so they accepted it and assumed it and, and they never threw it in your face. It's just that they, they were the kind of people that you would just naturally respect and you would show them the custom and courtesy that, you, that, that they deserved. Uh, and they were always very friendly and everything, but they were, they were never your buddy. 
You don't ever, as a commander, you don't want to be somebody's buddy. You want to be friendly with your troops, and you want to know about them and everything. But, and these guys were this way. One of them had been a former astronaut candidate. Hmm. He was, and, and, and the other guy was just an old warrior who'd flown first combat in, in, in Korea. But number one, they, they knew exactly who they were and lived it that way. Uh, number two, they knew exactly what our squadron mission was, and they made sure that we understood what our squadron mission was. They made sure that we understood right down to the lowest airman what our role was and that squadron's mission, and, and, and they maintained standards. Uh, stand of was very important to them because that was their mechanism for making sure that we were maintaining standards. But most importantly, uh, neither one of those guys was the best pilot in the squadron, but they were totally competent, and, and, and they could, any mission that came down, they would be part of it. They flew their share of the missions. If a big mission came down where we really had a real focus on something, they'd be right in the middle of it, sometimes leading the way. Uh, and and uh, <clears throat> they just, they set high standards, and they just made sure that we maintained them. They, again, they were very close to our stand of valve section. They were very close to uh, our weapons and tactics group, so that we were, we were using the smartest possible uh, 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 knowledge of weaponry and tactics, so we were getting the most out of our missions. We weren't doing stupid things. And they would talk to us a lot about stupid things that were going on and why that was bad and why we needed to stop doing that. You know, because they couldn't be everywhere all the time, so they they had to push the standards down to us. And then they were just they they were very encouraging. Uh, they were again they were they were friendly, but they were not buddies to us. Mm -hmm. I mean, if if somebody needed to be disciplined, they would do that. But the, it was interesting to watch how they would do that. Sometimes all it would take would be a little. They'd ask you a question, uh, like what happened out there today. And you could just tell by their tone that they knew you'd screwed something up, and they just want to know. And a lot of times, they would just get you talking about it, and, and you would literally solve your own problem because you realized what you'd screwed up, and then how to fix it was intuitive. Mm -hmm. See, real, real interesting little skill set there. Uh, and uh, those are the guys, I think, that what really made the good, the good squadron commanders. Uh, and... and uh, they were very important. They were very interested in our awards and decks programs. They made sure that uh, uh, that the programs were being uh, properly executed and the work was being done, and that uh, they watched out to make sure that the awards and decks people weren't just giving themselves all the medals because mm -hmm. sometimes that can be a real problem. Mm -hmm. But they made it clear that this was important for unit morale and that our people deserve to be recognized for the for the things that they were doing, and and uh, and so uh, they, because I worked in Words Index for a while, and they really they really pushed on us hard to make sure we were keeping our records straight. Because if you got, you'd fly so many missions over a time period, then you would you would uh, be authorized an air medal, and they made sure that those applications for the medals and everything were going in, and and that we were reviewing after action reports to see if somebody had to do something. Uh, and, and we had a lot of this because we, we ran a lot of big rescues and stuff like that, see if, if somebody wasn't, uh, wasn't uh, uh, deserving of a uh, distinguished flying cross or a silver star, in some cases even Air Force crosses, you know. Uh, and, and again, they, they knew uh, 
<clears throat> they were very good in representing our squadron to the higher ups. And if, if, uh, if guys would get in trouble, uh, they would find out about it and they would be the ones who'd smack them down and, and correct them and, 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 and discipline them as necessary. Uh, and in fact, I, I saw one time we had one of the colonels on our base got really, was really upset with one of our young officers and the, and the squadron commander intercepted the colonel and said, what's going on here? And, and basically said to the colonel in no uncertain terms, sir, that man is in my squadron. He works for me. I will discipline this man. Uh, I will take care of this. We, we, we don't need your help on this matter. And the, and the colonel wisely backed off. And it was obvious then to me that the colonel really respected my squadron commander. What's that dynamic like? Is it more so because, say, it's better to approach things from a bottom up than have it come top down? Well, in this case, the squadron commander wants to command a squadron. Mm -hmm. And if, if, uh, if, if somebody's screwing up on the squadron... He, he wants to know about it. He'll look into it. He'll talk to the individual involved, find out what the facts are in the case. Because a lot of time, a lot of it's just BS talk. You know, somebody trying to get even with somebody. Squadron commanders would look into it and give the the individual a, an opportunity to to explain himself. And, and and by this time, these individuals had enough time. They were you know they're 15, 16, 17 year guys in the Air Force, and and they probably had flown in Korea too. So they, 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 they could tell, you know, the difference between what's true and what's BS. I mm -hmm. mean, they're, uh, they, they had worked through all of that. And I just found them to be very fair, both in sharing the good and sometimes sharing the bad. And if there was something bad that needed to be done, tough missions, something like that, they'd be right there in the middle of it, either participating or making sure that it was being done the way we were designed and orga uh, organized and trained to do it, best kind. And, and to me, it was just, to me, leadership was hands-on, especially in a combat situation. What Those does that guys, mean, hands-on? Well, uh, because they, they knew what the mission was, they knew what our guys that, that needed to be do, doing to do the mission, and in many cases, they would be doing it themselves. Okay. So they were leading from the front by example. So, like, I have no operational experience. Is that the case where sometimes leaders can be like hey do this but just kind of like watch from the back but they also have the they have their own discretion too if they if they so choose sure. to but, but lead the commander from the, front. The, the commander can't do everything okay mm. yeah, but so generally he, he or she uh, needs to understand again make sure that they fully understand what their what their mission set is how that fits into the group or the wing for which they work their piece of all that how to interact and then make sure that everybody understands their part uh, and is in fact doing their part of all that. And, and the commander a lot of times just does his, his or her best just by standing back and watching. Mm -hmm. uh, and especially when dealing with enlisted troops, uh, commander definitely needs to be uh, tight with uh, the senior enlisted leader for the, for the unit or whatever it is. Uh, because uh, that that senior NCO is the conduit to the enlisted force, mm -hmm. you know, and, and the same thing applies to them. So the commander is going to be very very tight with his senior enlisted leader, make sure that he or she knows their mission, their role, and all that, and then be very observant and, and willing to listen when issues arise in that area. And a lot of time, the 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 commander and the senior enlisted leader will be up by themselves just talking, 
working out, identifying problems, you know, and trying to keep the unit moving forward. Hmm. Yeah. And then I had some other leaders that were like the opposite of that, that uh, they were leader in name only. They were leader in rank only. They were usually the ones who would throw their rank in your face, you know, uh, and more often than not, they would be responsible for some particular function in the squadron, and they would let everybody know that, that, that that's their baby, that's their thing. And a lot of times they would use that against you to punish you if you didn't do what, what they wanted you to do. I mean, very, very negative. And, and I remember I had uh, I was flying one day from the Phnom over to uh, Da Nang in South Vietnam, and I had to fly over the Ho Chi Minh Trail. So I'm flying along, and I'm just doing a, 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 I'm just taking an airplane over. So I'm not on a combat mission, right? So I'm flying over the Ho Chi Minh Trail, and I look down, and I see some trucks going down the road. Hmm. So I called up the, uh, the orbiting control aircraft in that area. Call sign was Hillsboro. I said, hey, Hillsboro, this is so-and-so, and uh, I'm en route from uh, NKP to, to Da Nang, and I'm looking down here. I'm in Sector 3, and I... I, I see uh, down here on Route 23, I see a bunch of movers. And he go, uh, how are you doing that? And I said, what do you mean? I, I just I said, the weather's clear down here. And he goes, well, uh, uh, Nail so-and-so was patrolling that area. And he said the area was unworkable for weather, so he went on home. And about that time, I, I hear that fact saying, okay, Hillsborough, I'm, I'm going, I'm switching over to NKP now. Uh, good day. You know, and he's leaving. And this guy had abandoned his station on a day when the weather was fully workable and there was enemy in sight. So I called up, uh, so I went back to Hillsboro and I said, well, Hillsboro, can you send me some air? I'll put it in. And they said, what's your mission number? And I said, I don't have a mission number. I'm just going to Denang. And they said, no, unless you're on the frag, is a, is, a, is a frag mission with a mission number, you can't put in any airstrikes. And so there it was. So I'm looking at these Trucks driving down the road, kicking up dust and everything full of enemy supplies or troops or whatever, and I can't do anything about it. Is that just like an issue of bureaucracy? Or was it the commander's... The It was an issue of cowardice is what it was. The fact that it was assigned in that area had called in and said, the other weather's unworkable, I'm going home. And it was an officer that was basically a coward. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the kind of stuff I could never respect. I'll tell you another story about flying over the Ho Chi Minh Trail. <clears throat> I'm out there one day looking around, and same thing happens, and I see this truck that's driving down the road. Middle of the day, holy cow. <laughs> so I called up for air, no air's available, so I decided I'm going to try to get this truck myself because a smoke rocket has an explosive warhead, and if you can actually hit the truck with the smoke rocket, you can blow it up, okay? So, and, I, and, I, and, and this was a dumb bomb, right? This wasn't anything yeah, well, was laser-guided? Yeah, I'm just going to be firing okay. rockets. Rockets are fairly better accurate than bombs are. But anyway, so, and, I, and I, I, it occurred to me, too, that he was towing something, but I didn't pay much attention to it. So I, I fired a rocket near where he was, and then the truck stopped, right? So I go back around, and I said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kill this truck. So I roll in, and I'm tracking, 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 and I'm going much, much lower than I should have because I want to make this shot just perfect. And then I discovered what he was towing. He was towing a 23-millimeter anti-aircraft gun because he opened up on me. Oh, my sudden, gosh. All of a sudden, I just see a, a stream of bullets coming right over the top of my airplane, and I realized, I'm going to die, man. <laughs> and so I pulled off, and, and that guy, 
he, that gun chased me literally out of the valley. I'd turn this way, he'd be firing at me, I'd turn this way. And I used up, I used up one of my lucky chits that day. You know, I got a little bit greedy and my fangs were hanging out. And so I rolled in on this guy and I was pressing way lower than I should have. And I was right down in the heart of his firing zone. And that, that, gun, that guy is just unlucky that he didn't kill me that day because he had me dead to rights. Wow. You're here today, though. Yeah, it was my lucky day, man. Holy crap. 23 millimeters, just a steady stream of bullets going by. And when I pulled up, I could see up in the sky all the air bursts going off up there. He probably fired a thousand rounds at me. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's what you do when you're a young combat aviator. Well, do you, so back to the, the strand of a, a bad leader, what other attributes do you think, say, that you've seen in, in that theater? Like a, a tangible example of, hey, wow, this was, like you mentioned cowardice. Dishonesty. Um, I worked in, again, I worked in awards and decks for a period of time, and um, I had numerous guys come to me and try to talk me into writing them up for uh, medals, mm -hmm. DFCs, one case even a Silver Star, and uh, because of their sworn statements that they gave me on the mission, yet when I went and did some research from other sources to see what this was all about, it was obvious that they were just making something up, and uh, I pissed a few of them off, but because, you know, a lot of them, uh, senior captains, young majors, well, in one case, it was a lieutenant colonel, and this was going to be his combat tour. So he, he wanted to come home with some, some medals and ribbons. And, and uh, I just, I wasn't going to do it. You know, I, 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 took, I took that work very seriously because those awards that we gave out are supposed to mean something mm -hmm. important. You don't want to dilute the value by giving. And that's right. Yeah. And, and, and in fact, one time I even went in and talked to the ops officer about it, and he said, I'll take care of this. I don't know what he did, but uh, I, I took that, 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 quote, nomination for a medal that the guy gave me for himself. I just tore it up and threw it away. How does that usually go? Is it something when it comes to medals that other people recommend a person for, or is it always you have to vouch for yourself? No, what, 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 what squad commander did, and he was real good, cause, and, and, he, and he showed some interest in, in our program, because any, any nomination like that for an award had to go out under his signature. And so he came in and he talked to us, and he, you know, he, he, he encouraged us by saying that, you know, the awards and decks program is there to recommend above and beyond, and, and uh, the, these awards are important, and, and as you know, we're flying some tough missions here, and I expect that we're going to have some award nominations. And, and so the protocol that we had set up, uh, people were allowed to come in and request and say, hey, take a look at this mission or that. Uh, and we could, we could go down and we could get the after-action reports. And, and it was not unusual uh, if we say we had a big search and rescue mission that the squadron commander himself would, would be tracking this mission and he'd come in and say, I want so-and-so nominated for Silver Star. I want this guy DFC and that kind of stuff. He would do that. The ops officer would do that. And then occasionally other individuals would come in and say, hey, I flew with so-and-so today, and he really did this shit, huh? I had other guys come in to me and say, 
I don't care what anybody says, I don't want to be nominated for any awards. None. Because some of them, like, we would keep track of all the missions that the guys flew. And, and if you flew, I think it was 15 missions in, in Laos, then you would be put in for an air medal. See, so you could get well, 10 or 15 on your tour like that. And then at the end of the year, uh, uh, the, we had a policy there in 7th Air Force where uh, if, you, if you flew a complete tour, they, they would recognize you for what they called an end of tour DFC, Distinguished Flying Cross. But a, a flying cross required that you then flag a particular mission and create a citation and write it for that mission. So okay. what I would do in that case, the, the, uh, the uh, commander or the OPSA would come in and say, okay, these guys are finishing up their tours now and uh, you know they're gonna be eligible for end of tour DFC, so, so you need to go to them and have them flag a mission for you on such and such a date. Uh, and then we would do a little citation for that and that would become the basis of their distinguished flag cross. Okay. But uh, both of those squadron commanders that I had were really hot on their awards and ducks programs because they saw how important they were in recognizing our guys when they had good missions and how important their awards and decks uh, uh, that they that they earned would be, uh, you know, to to the rest of their career because you, you walk out of there with a combat tour and you're wearing certain ribbons and everything and that basically means you've been to the war mm -hmm. and that becomes part of your career. I, r I ran into that later on when I came back from my fact tour, uh, I ran into numerous guys uh, that were uh, IPs, instructor pilots there in the training command who did not have combat tours. And they were very defensive about that. You know, when we put on our blue uniforms, those of us who were combat veterans, we'd have several rows of ribbons and they'd have maybe one or two individual ribbons, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that would cause some friction sometimes too. So an after action report is it, did I say that correctly? Yeah. Okay. Um, that is like a report done after a mission or a sortie yeah, yeah. by everyone involved. Yeah. When we when we would come back um, from a mission, we had certain forms to fill out. If we put in airstrikes, we had to give the coordinates of the airstrike, and the time, and basically what the results were and everything. And then at any time, if you had something unusual happen on a mission. Uh, you could write up a mission report. It didn't have to happen every mission mm. that you'd write something up like that. But certainly if you came back from like a search and rescue mission, we wanted to document all that because a lot of times those would be generators of awards. So we would create narratives for that. And, and uh, it's interesting now. I go back now and I look at my unit history from that time period and, and there are numerous write-ups like that in there. And I, I recognize all those events and occurrences and missions and again they uh, a lot of times those write-ups there would become the basis of you know uh, uh, awards and then if we had something very dramatic happen a lot of times the uh, the squadron commander would tell us to go in and interview so-and-so and get a statement from him uh, on a particular mission so but again what was integral to that was the squadron commander put a lot of import in that awards and text program Mm -hmm. because the impact that it could have on morale and everything for the unit. Mm -hmm. yeah. So shifting back to a little bit of the academy, what is it like to be a part of like the first war that the academy has been a part of? Well, uh, 
again, that was just a matter of timing, you know. And and uh, as as the as you know, the first graduates came out of here in 1959, and uh, then along we started into the whole Vietnam thing in in the early 60s, and. Uh, <clears throat> There was some discussion about, hey, this is the Academy's first war and everything, and, and uh, uh, there was just this expectation that we graduates would, would be going into the conflict if we graduated while the war was still, still going on, and that was certainly the case. Uh, I know the earlier classes where they only had like two, three, four hundred grads were much more heavily affected by the war because there were just so many fewer of them. I think it was the class of 62 or 63 lost a bunch of guys flying F-105s because starting in 65 when we had Rolling Thunder, those guys were flying heavy combat in the F-105s. And in uh, I think well over 50% of all the F-105s ever produced are still in Southeast Asia. The losses mm. were so high. You know, on the airplane, it, it, had, it had apparently, uh, it was fairly vulnerable in that uh, key, key systems like hydraulic systems did not have backups to it and everything like that. And it had hydraulic flight controls. And if you lose your hydraulics, your flight controls freeze up and you got to get out of the airplane. You know, it really wasn't optimized for fighting that kind of a war. It was designed to deliver nuclear weapons, you know, the F-105. Uh, and now we're using it to carry uh, 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 dumb bombs into North Vietnam and Laos and Cambodia and everything where there were lots of guns. The airplanes were very vulnerable. And uh, so... Um, and as young cadets, you know, uh, I can remember many a day we'd go to lunch and they would announce so-and-so class of such and such has been reported shot down by an F-105 and he was killed or he's missing or he's been confirmed as a POW. And then when we got up to, when I was a second degree, uh, I remember the first time I heard somebody from the class of 66 that had trained us. Mm. that he was shot down. I know that guy. Yeah, that I mean, must have been really, close to home. It really personalizes it, you know? Yeah. And then that just continued right on through second class year and then first class year, you know? More and more of these guys, I knew they were in my squadron, you know? And then I, uh, and then again, the war is continuing to go on, so there was just this expectation. That's what we're going to be doing. That's, that's why we're here. And I went, I went again, I, I think I mentioned it before, but when I went through pilot training, it was with the expectation that I would be going to Southeast Asia. That's, that's what we were all about. And another thing too, you know, when I graduated pilot training, I was not married, so I didn't have that uh, to worry about. And, and uh, it was a little tougher for the guys who were married to then leave and go to war, but many of them did it too, you know. Mm -hmm. But then I got over to the war, and I served with lots and lots and lots of my classmates and then guys in the class of 68 that I'd known, class of 70, 71, and that's, that's just what this place produces. Mm -hmm. It'll be the same for you guys. You know, in, in the book, In the Mouth of the Cat, it kind of goes a little bit into how Saijon was mentally and physically preparing to be shot down mm. um whether it was he bought a bigger pistol to actually defend himself if he were to get shot down and putting on muscle mass um so that if he were to get shot down and he had no food for weeks at a time that 
his muscle mass could sustain him and mm -hmm. things of that nature and having conversations with his classmates as a young officer and as a firsty mm -hmm. What was I'm sure that was very nerve-wracking that you you had all these reports coming back to you as a cadet that hey these people you knew not even four years ago are dead or in a very despicable position. What what, what type of effect does that have? Well, it it, it just again it, it further accentuated to all of us what the school was for and what the school was all about. And, and I can remember taking some of those feelings forward myself. When I was flying heavy combat, there were specific things that I did when I flew. First of all, we take all our patches and everything off mm -hmm. and leave them behind. But I, I used to carry a little, uh, a special little knife in my left boot. You know, the idea being that if an enemy, uh, if, if I was shot down and captured, uh, there was a possibility that, that uh, before I was taken off to, to uh, to prison or something that I might have an opportunity to maybe try to escape or defend myself, but then I found out later on that that was a that was half baked at best because generally when our guys would get shot down and get on the ground and taken prisoner, first thing the enemy would do is take away their boots for two reasons. First of all, they knew that Americans never walked around without any shoes on, so their feet were real tender, and so if you're in the wilderness somewhere and you don't have any boots on you're not gonna go very far before you tear your feet up, number mm -hmm. one. Uh, number two, they wanted the boots. <laughs> so they would, have, they would have found that knife. But I used to, when I was flying with the Ravens up in Laos, uh, I, uh, I had a survival vest and I had a 38 caliber pistol, but I also uh, carried a, 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 a nine millimeter Tokarev pistol, which the Laotians gave me in, in, a, in a holster on my, at a web belt that I wore. And then when I, when I flew, I also carried an AR-15 in the cockpit with about 100 rounds or so of ammunition. And then for a while, there were times when I had a, a bag of hand grenades with me. Hmm. So if I ever went down to my one I was totally on my own, you know. And, and, uh, and then I also had some, uh, some uh, smoke flares that I could use and stuff like that. And of course, in the one I didn't have an injection seat, so I didn't have to worry about that. So whatever I could take with me, I would. And then I would also take some, uh, uh, some like like uh, health bars, uh, whatever they were back in those days. And uh, I always make sure that I had canteens of water with me in the airplane. But again, when you're flying in an injection seat, you can't, you don't have room for all yeah. that kind of stuff. And then I made damn well sure that I knew where everything was on my survival rest. I get to it quickly. I knew, I knew intimately how to use my survival radio. I always carried a backup radio. I always carried backup batteries. Because if you're down in enemy territory, that, that radio is your lifeline. Mm. Yeah, and that's still true to this day. Uh, in fact, in later years, I did a lot of work in the area of search and rescue, combat search and rescue. We call it personnel recovery today. And I'm reminded of the story where in uh, Bosnia in 1999, we had a guy shot down in F-117, a guy by the name of Dale Zelko. Dale, Dale Zelko was an 82 grad, I think, from the academy. And he was perfectly prepared to be a survivor. And we picked him up that night uh, while the enemy knew that he was down and they really wanted him. And we got in first and picked him up. And we picked him up in large part because Dale uh, uh, Zelko was the perfect survivor. He was perfectly fit he every every time before he flew he would hydrate and he would eat the proper foods and everything 
and he was totally mentally prepared to be down there on the ground. And, and he, more than anybody else, that night saved Dale Zilko. I mean, helicopter guys came in and picked him up and everything else, but he made that happen. He was, when, when we needed him to signal, talk to us, whatever we needed him to do, he understood and he did it. And we got him out there literally seconds before he was taken prisoner. I think I actually remember you telling that story during CST last summer. Yeah, I did. I did talk about Zelko. Mm. And you're right in making that point. I, I tried as much as I could at CST last summer to impart those very thoughts onto you men and women so that these ideas we burned in your head, that was the whole purpose of CST. Mm -hmm. you know, and, and, and sometimes history can be the strongest teacher. You bet. Mm -hmm. I think it, there, there's, I always come back to stoicism. Somehow I find some way to do it. But it's, it's how prepared you are because your team, like you can rely on, on them as much as you want. And they're extremely very capable in the combat search and rescue team. But if you're not doing your part, you're the weakest link and you won't get rescued. Well, I, I won't say won't get, but you complicate the matter in a, in a time when you're working on very thin margins of capabilities and time and, and assets available and such. And so you, you do everybody a great favor by doing your part in all of that. Mm -hmm. <sighs> to finish things out, um, from the beginning to the end of your time in Southeast Asia, what about your perspective on the war changed? Whether it was politically or just about the military in general, maybe about well, the people? Well, when I went over, you know, of course I was just a, a young lieutenant, and how much does a young lieutenant really know? But I honestly believe that what we were doing was right in, in trying to stop communism and and, 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 and all, actually all of that was reinforced when I got over there when I saw the face of communism and what it really represented. Mm -hmm. And so I had no trouble supporting the mission. But there were times when it seems to me, it seemed to me that we, we weren't doing things the smartest way of doing things. And I had trouble with that over the years and that led me to do, in my later years, do a lot of research and writing about the war in Southeast Asia so that I, I finally came to understand what the bigger issues were and everything. And, and I, 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 I have come to the conclusion that our nation made some really, really big strategic errors over there. Part of it was probably arrogance. Uh, I, I, and again, as an airman, I really think that we oversold what air power could do for us in that war. Uh, it's clear to me now in studying the war that we made a strategic error, error, error by not dealing with Laos. I think we fought the wrong, the right war but in the wrong place. And uh, as an airman, I, you know, I have learned to look at that overall as a theater conflict. And interestingly enough, use that concept when one looks at OIF or OEF uh, or even in the Ukraine right now, to understand uh, the bigger picture of what air power can and cannot do for you. You know, I, uh, and because of that, I'm a great fan of the United States Navy. I'm a great fan 
of the United States Army, especially, and of course the Marine Corps, because those men and women create other special capabilities that we have that are so fundamental and foundational to the way we need to be able to fight our wars. At the same time, I understand acutely the role of air power and am trying now to understand the power of aerospace power because that's a new dimension that we have to deal with and also cyber power because cyberspace is now a theater of war. So things are much more complicated today than they are. And all of these areas will be arenas in which we will be fighting, probably are fighting now, if we ever have to go up against uh, the Russians or the Chinese, God forbid. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, there's scary things going on in this world out there now, and, and I, I hate to say this, but my, my class was a war class, and I think your class is gonna be a war class too. Uh, if you take the broad sweep, just consider this. Let's look at World War II. Where did World War II start? What was the opening events? Are you jogging my memory? Um, 1 September 1939. Who did what? Germany invaded Poland, right? Yeah, okay. that, that's what happened. Now, yeah. now let's <laughs> jump forward almost six years. And how did World War II end? Dropping a bomb. Who dropped the bomb? America dropped the bomb, or on, two bombs on, on what? Hiroshima and Nagasaki. What country? Japan. Japan. So the war starts with Germany and Poland, and it ends up with the United States and Japan. Now, explain that trail to me, how hmm. all that happened. Now, we're not going to do that now, but now you take that and you apply that pattern, if you will, to Ukraine. Here's Ukraine. How's this going to play out? I mean, there's a thousand different variables and a thousand different ways this could play out. If the Russians are stupid enough to do something into Poland, or they just make a mistake and they engage NATO, holy cow. And now we've got Finland and, and, and Sweden about to join NATO. We've got Turkey down here. And it, we, it looks like right now we don't know which way Turkey's going to go, but they're supposed to be a NATO power. So there's so many variables in play. And then, of course, standing back and watching all of this is China. If, if we tangle Taking with, notes. If, if we, if we tangle with, with Russia over the Ukraine, the winner of that fight is going to be China. And then, of course, out here is Taiwan. You know, we, we, we live in really, really scary times. You know, and, and this thing could so quickly fly out of control, uh, just like World War II did, because it was this, and then this happened, and then these countries came in, and then they attacked here, and then over here, and then all of a sudden, the, the, uh, and the United States is trying to stay out of it, but we can't really stay out of it because we are the arsenal of democracy, and we're supplying equipment and everything, and then the Germans see that, so they try to interdict the equipment, they start sinking our ships, in the, in the Atlantic, and so the president sees that inevitably we have to get into this. He thinks we're gonna start something in the, in the Atlantic, and out of nowhere, Japan bombs us at Pearl Harbor. So then we go to war against Japan, but our real threat is against Germany. So how do we get involved in fighting Germany? I mean, all these twists and turns and, you know, in, in everything, and that's what so scares me about Ukraine. This could get out of hand so fast. Hmm. Yeah. Scary stuff, man. Uh, I'm working with um, 
I shouldn't say I'm working with. I, I've been going to intelligence briefs with the Institute of Future Conflict here. Are you familiar with General Schwedo? Schwedo, yeah. Yeah. I know, I know him. Yeah. No, they bring a lot of cool, uh, I mean, apart from General Schwedo and um, we, I think it was Dr. Tingle. He's a, some, he works in the Institute for Future Conflict. Mm -hmm. I encourage everyone to go out there because this is what we're going to get involved with and having this background knowledge and kind of mentally preparing yourself for that is, in my opinion, beneficial. But it is really crazy to hear. I mean, hey, I'm graduating in, I mean, hopefully, if I make it that far, in two, three years. Who's to say that this isn't going to go away anytime soon? There, there are many geopolitical um, kind of tension points that we, we will be at the front line of. We recently had... A secret brief and it was extremely real I obviously I can't go into w what was discussed there but to we to have that kind of aspect of hey we, we didn't have what you had where at Mitch's they'd announce at, uh, on the staff tower that this cadet who was um, graduated this many years ago as a prisoner of war but you may have yeah but it, it, it's possible in the future yeah, so th having these types of exposures to, like, hey, we're not, we are not at a college. This is not a college. No, you do not go, this, this is at a university level school academically, but this is not a university. This is a military base. You are in a military organization. You have military rank. Mm -hmm. And your job right now is to be a cadet and learn, 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 okay? But your future is dictated by what happens in the future. Mm -hmm. And and I, like I say, I, I think it's and I, I, I I don't say this in a mean way, but I think you're going to be a war class mm -hmm. because there are there are big things lining up out there, and there could be a black swan event or who knows, you know. Uh, I mean, like this thing with the balloon a couple of weeks ago. What the hell is that all about? And I can assure you that at least some of those pilots flying those F-22s were graduates of this institution. Mm -hmm. No, the one who shot down the balloon was a was a grad. I think, twenty ten maybe. I don't I don't remember the exact number. Totally not surprised. Mm -hmm. But I guess on that vein, do you have any uh, unique advice that you give to anybody who's looking to commission? Yeah, a couple of practical thoughts here. Uh, I would say um, a couple of things. Uh, first of all, uh, as I mentioned before, all you know, all you graduates. At, it's sometime you spend four years here as a cadet and then you can spend the rest of your life as a graduate of this institution you'll be involved with our association of graduates and all those kind of things but all of you at some point will leave the Air Force and when you do that if you do it in the early years you have the option of doing guard or reserve duty something that you should consider because again you can continue to serve and that can be very fulfilling. I, I served eight years active duty and then 22 years in the Air Force Reserve. And I, I did some incredibly neat things as an Air Force Reservist to include flying A-37s and then A-10s. I went to National War College in residence for a year, took time off from my airline job and did that. Uh, many of you might very well decide uh, that uh, you, you wanna leave military flying uh, and you can do that. There's a, quite a market for your services out in our national airlines. 
that are full of Air Force Academy graduates. Uh, I've been told, I can't prove this, but it, I've been told more than once that the Air Force Academy is the single largest producer of airline pilots in the world. And I would believe that because it's, that's a skill set that you can leverage out there in industry and have a very good life uh, comfortably doing that. Uh, but all of you, uh, when you leave active duty, if you can, I, I urge you to consider Guard and Reserve duty. Uh, something else that I would recommend that all of you do now is that you learn to live within your financial means. Get used to that. Uh, I encourage all of you to start a savings program now. Take a percent of your pay, gross or net, however you want to do it, but every month you make that deposit into your savings and that becomes your first bill where you are literally paying yourself and you start saving money You'll build up a nest egg, you'll get to the point where you will then have the assets where you can reach out and you can invest into this very dynamic national economy, uh, which is such a driver of wealth creation in this world. This is part of your birthright as Americans. Take advantage of that. And But again, to do that, you have to live within your means, but save and invest and you'd be surprised at how quickly your fortune will, will grow and, and become very something very sizable in your life and give you the opportunity to live a very, very comfortable life, both rewarding in your work, but also in the lifestyle that you will be able to provide for you and your life's mate. And, 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 uh, and if you choose to have children, to provide to them. Uh, also give a lot of thought to that person that you choose to be your life's mate, that will be the biggest decision of your life. And I'll leave it at that. I'd really like you to uh, elaborate on that last part, but... Uh... Well, I, you want me to say, I mean, I, I'm not trying to dictate to anybody how they live their lives, mm -hmm. but uh, like I say, that person that you choose to be your life's mate, it's probably the most important decision you'll ever make. And you have to base that relationship on friendship. The love will come later, and it'll be a very natural thing. But most, more than anything else, you have to be good friends, and it goes forward from there. Colonel Wickholm, it's been a pleasure having you. Okay, thank you so much, and uh, I bless you all. God bless you. Thank you, sir.